You're listening to a podcast from Conflicting Chronologies in the Pre-Modern World, measuring time from antiquity to the Middle Ages and Renaissance. This conference took place in the University College Dublin Humanities Institute on the 4th and 5th of October 2018 and was organised by Helen Dixon from the UCD School of Classics and Rebecca Stevenson from the UCD School of English, Drama and Film. The conference was generously supported by the UCD College of Arts and Humanities, the UCD Humanities Institute, UCD School of English and the UCD School of Classics. This episode features the second keynote from the conference, which is given by Roy Liazza from the University of Tennessee. His lecture was entitled, Well-Tempered Instruments, Measuring and Marking the Hours of the Day in Early Medieval England. Roy Liazza was introduced by Rebecca Stevenson. I'd like to welcome you to this last plenary session. And in particular, I want to pause and take a moment to thank our sponsors. Um, We have received generous funding for this conference from the College of Arts and Humanities. The Humanities Institute, as we mentioned yesterday, provide us not only with space, but with money as well to bring in our speakers. In addition to that, um, the School of Classics has generally provided money as well, and the School of English too. So we've actually been quite richly supported by the university. Thank you to all of our sponsors who have provided for us so well. Um, And so it is my delight and my pleasure today to introduce to you our plenary speaker, who is Roy Leitza. Roy Leitza is quite an esteemed Anglo-Saxonist and a very important figure in the study of time. He did his PhD at Yale with Fred Robinson and has gone on. He's worked at Ohio State, Tulane, Tennessee, the University of Toronto. His current post is at the University of Tennessee, where he works in the Marco Institute. And I wanted to put in a little plug here because he actually runs a manuscript seminar. The theme for this year is fragments, bits and pieces. And um, actually, there'll be a call going out in November. And this is quite a good little seminar. It's more of a workshop in that you take some manuscript that you're working on and you share with people interdisciplinarily and in different kind of time periods the way we do. All of you look for it in November. If you can afford the trip to Tennessee, it's it's quite it's quite a good little it's quite a good little center. But moving on um, beyond professional affiliations, he um, has published extensively in the field of Old English generally. So for instance, he um, edited the Old English Gospels. Um, he published a translation of Beowulf that came out the same month as some other translation of Beowulf that you might have heard of, Posse, translated by Seamus Haney. And one of those translators was on the cover of the New York Review of Books, and I'll let you decide which one. Um, <laughs> Um, in addition to that, he's, as I said, worked extensively in time. So he also has an edition of the prognostical text of Cotton Tiberius A3, which is the main text of the Regularis Concordia that they were talking about earlier. Um, he's written such seminal articles as the sense of time in Anglo-Saxon England. So really, when you're talking about time and how we look at it from an Anglo-Saxon point of view, Roy Liutza has done so much work on the scientific inquiry into time, and also kind of, he's a literature scholar though as well, so combining a kind of scientific interest in time in how poetry is told is Roy's real specialty. And that's why we're so privileged today to hear him give his plenary, which is titled Well-Tempered Instruments, Measuring and Marking the Hours of the Day in Early Medieval England. Thank you for overselling this paper so (laughs) generously. Um, I was delighted to be asked to to come and speak here, and uh, I thought an audience, I can talk about what I'm thinking about with an audience of people who are 
also thinking about it. And if I had given this paper yesterday, you would have been impressed with how many people were echoing the brilliant ideas that I provoked here. Um, as it is today, I will be echoing your brilliant ideas. And uh, I hope you won't mind a little recapitulation of some of the other papers uh, and a testimony to really how little evidence there is in Anglo-Saxon England for the things we're working on, because we're all citing the same few uh, bits and pieces of evidence. So colonizers bring with them their empires of time in Anthony Avini's evocative phrase, along with new laws, new configurations of power, and new economic relationships. Colonization often involves the imposition of a new temporal discipline. From India to Australia, the mission of British imperialism included the promotion of the virtues of industriousness, dependability, and temporal regularity. For example, the British uh, began building clock towers in India shortly after the Sepoy Mutiny of 1857. These were meant to remind the natives of the power of the empire, to instill in them the Victorian virtue of punctuality. They were symbols of British authority and admonishments to the natives whose non-British sense of time led them to be characterized as lazy or shiftless. The clock towers, some of which drew violent protest and vandalism, have been called a kind of reverse panopticon, asserting authority by pulling the gaze of others inward. Uh, the same description might apply to any tool imposed on a population to discipline and constrain the inner life of its members, from new modes of dress to new calendars. In a broadly similar way, though certainly a less violent way, the conversion of the Anglo-Saxons to Christianity introduced the need for, and the possibility of, a new precision in time measurement and temporal observance, just as it introduced new social hierarchies, new centers of power and authority, and new standards of learning. The agrarian society of the early Anglo-Saxons was built around families, tribes, and land. Their everyday experience of time would have been determined by the rhythms of this way of life, planting and harvesting, sunrise and sunset, calving, milking, slaughtering, winter, summer, the tides at sea, the daily lives of farmers, shepherds, fishermen, and craftspeople, follow the contours of these rhythms. Now, to be sure, the church was also part of this agrarian system, equally subject to the rhythms of nature. If you recognize that illustration there, it's from a Psalter calendar. But Christian observance of time required a qualitatively different experience, one dependent on social context rather than the natural environment. Christian time is a complex network, interlocking cycles with daily and weekly prayer, the sanctoral with its annual commemorations, the temporal with its observances of Lent and Easter and Pentecost, all superimposed on the natural rhythms of the day, the month, and the year. At every scale, large and small, Christian life mandated an unprecedented attention to time and a new discipline of observation, measuring its passage, naming its units and intervals, and inflecting it through an ever-changing performance of the liturgy or the Opus Dei. Like literacy, this new Christian consciousness of time gradually spread to become an integral part of lay society. And like literacy, there were both high and low iterations of Christian temporality. The erudition of Bede and the complexities of the computus on the one hand, and on the other, the tools and techniques used to coordinate daily and weekly prayer in local churches. Now, we know something of the pre-conversion English year because Bede records the names of the English months in De Temporum Ratione, Chapter 15. Uh, according to Bede, the English followed a lunisolar cycle of 12 or 13 months, 
since, the, as we know, the lunar year slips 10 or 11 days back from the solar year every year. A 13th month was inserted every few years to realign the lunar month and the solar cycles. Later writers, however, simply mapped the English names onto the 12 solar months of the Roman calendar as if they were the same. They are so used in later Old English writing, and they're found as curiosities in some later manuscripts alongside the Hebrew and Greek names of the months. We also know that the English before the conversion had a seven-day week on the Roman model because the names of the weekdays are the names of the pagan deities Tu, Woden, Thor, Freya, substituted for the Roman planetary gods of Mars, Mercury, Jove, and Venus. It's generally thought the continental Germanic uh, tribes adopted the seven-day week around the 3rd century AD, and the English retained it despite some objections after the conversion. Whatever system they may have had before adopting the Roman system, if any, is no longer discernible. Now, turning to the question of the English day, which one might think would be one of the most natural and obvious units of time inscribed even in our biological rhythms, one is immediately beset by problems of definition. There was disagreement over when the day began, midday, midnight, dawn, sunset. The very term day is ambiguous as Bede and later writers such as Alfrich and Beertferth all note. That is the Old English here. I'll just read a translation for you. Day is spoken of in two ways, naturally and vulgarly. It is the nature of the day to have 24 hours from the rising of the sun until it again displays its beams. The vulgar or artificial day lasts from the sun rising till it goes to its seat, then it comes again as a joy to mankind. Now, Beardferth is writing in the Enchiridion around the turn of the millennium. He reverses what you might think of as the meanings of natural and artificial, i.e. something naturally observed by most people and something artificially proposed by the science of computers. For Beardfair, the natural day is the abstract one, whose regularity is part of the nature of the universe. The artificial day is one experienced or observed in the artifice of a sundial. The division of the day into hours was also different in common and scientific use, as we have heard. <laughs> I'm going to say that several times in this paper. Uh, equinoctial hours are part of the astronomical and computistical discourse. They're reckoned as one twenty-fourth part of the period between successive sunrises. In more widespread use in the ancient world were seasonal hours, each of which is one-twelfth of the actual length of daylight or darkness on a given day, and so varied in length with the seasons. In common use, an hour is a changing portion of daylight or darkness. In scientific use, an hour was a fixed unit of abstract time. The two systems had an uneasy coexistence in the Christian idea of time. The unequal hours had the authority of the Bible, right? Doesn't Jesus says at some point, uh, are there not 12 hours in a day? Which seems to reflect the uh, uneven, unequal system of hours. Alfred explains this by saying this must have been, he must have been talking about the equinox when there are literally 12 hours in a day. Uh, Benedict's rule and other early monastic observances, which prescribed group prayer at certain hours of the day, all did so using the Roman system of 12 daylight and 12 night hours. So even while the authors of Computus and astronomical texts stressed the primacy of the equinoctial hours, it was the flexible seasonal hours that structured their day. The 12 hours of the seasonal day were numbered, but the ones that mattered were the hours of monastic prayer, the first, third, sixth, ninth, twelfth, daybreak, mid-morning, mid-day, mid-afternoon, sunset. Native English names were applied to these 
and the other hours of prayer. An example is from Alfred's pastoral letter to Wolfsia from the very late 10th century. It behooves mass priests and all God's servants to hold their churches with holy service and sing in them the seven hours that are set for them as the synod instructs them. Ucht song and prime song, undern song and midday song, known song and even song, and night song the seventh. There is no separate word for hour. The, the word teed, as we've heard, translates Latin ora, but also tempus, time, generally. What Alfred calls prime song, using the borrowed Latin word prima, is elsewhere called by the English name diread song or daybreak song. Uh, the Latin word nona is borrowed for a time which apparently had no commonly used name in Old English. The time between midday and aven, roughly tea time, I think. Uh, later known, of course, as the time of the midday meal, which becomes English noon. Um, these native English words for times suggest that the day was divided into parts each about three hours long. Ucht, the time from the middle of the night, but before the glimmer of dawn. Daihred, from dawn to mid-morning. Undern was the middle of the morning, midday and midday. The time between midday and evening is named once in Old English as Yolotendai, the bending down day. I think the, the time of day when the sun starts to bend towards the, the horizon, maybe. It's apparently not in widespread use. That's a gloss translation. Uh, known is much more common, is a borrowed Latin word. Uh, Aven is the time around sunset. Then elsewhere we learn the foran nicht, first part of the night. Uh, quilled or sweetima is the dark or depth of night until uh, midnight. Names like these are descriptive rather than numerical as in ecclesiastical time. They suggest that the Anglo-Saxons before the conversion did not number or count the hours. Rather, they described the broad parts of the day based on observed phenomenon, dawn, the bending of the sun towards sunset, the deepest part of the night, and so on. It's been asserted that uh, the early Anglo-Saxons divided the day into eight tides of about three hours each. The evidence for this so-called octaval system was postulated largely uh, on the basis of Anglo-Saxon sundials, but I, I will suggest later that sundial markers serve a different purpose. But even putting aside the evidence of the sundials, something like this supposed octavo system does seem to be reflected in this vocabulary of time words used by the Anglo-Saxons. And such a system would follow the practices of early medieval time reckoning in Scandinavia. The day and the night are divided into named portions, not numbered hours. Time is not measured but marked. It's event-based. It's observational. The difference is at 5 p.m., is always 5 p.m. no matter what the sun is doing, but that evening is necessarily connected to something that's happening in the world. In practice, this is the Roman system, uh, the later the monastic system as well, despite its aspirations to numerical precision. The day and the night were divided into a few large parts. The passage through each part was reckoned by a variety of signs and only later reduced to a numerical sequence. One's place in time is situational, not abstract. In the same way that space can be imagined by time and direction based on your location, a certain village is a day's ride down the road or a neighbor's farm is an early morning walk across the field, time can be recognized in the space of the local landscape. When the sun is over that hill, that means it's midday. When the shadow of the big oak reaches that fence, it's time to bring in the sheep or whatever. 
Uh, the seasons can be traced in the stars, of course, and the zodiac, but they were also evident in the landscape, when the dog's mercury blooms, when the swallows return, it's spring, you had better be plowing. Gardeners know, better than scholars, how different flowers open and close at different times of day. Uh, in spring and summer, a rough sense of the time of day, finely tuned to local weather and conditions, uh, could be had by noticing the, the, the pimpernels and the pinks and the hawkweed and the sow thistle and uh, other plants that were once so plentiful in and around the plowed fields. Another good example of this uh, context-dependent and event-based sense of time is the time known as Heinkrad, cock crow, Latin gallicinium, somewhere between in the middle of the night and early morning. The crowing of cocks is an ancient indicator of daybreak. But cock crow is not a time, it's an event. It cannot be synchronized or standardized or predicted, only experienced. Crowing is affected by many factors, including the local seasonal intensity of light, the avian testosterone levels, uh, the size of the audience uh, of hens, not people. <laughs> Moreover, of course, cocks crow reliably only at dawn and just randomly the rest of the day. They're no use in marking any other time of day. The crowing of the cock is only one of many signs that might be used to divide the day and night into parts. Reckoning one's place in the day or year by the rhythms of the sky, the fields, and the farmyard meant knowing how to read different locally embedded signs at different times, in contrast to modern clock time, which involves knowing how to read the same symbol at every time of day. For most everyday purposes, there seems to have been little conflict between secular and ecclesiastical ways of reckoning the time of day. There's no real disparity in technology as there would be in the later you know, colonial impositions of new temporal regimes on indigenous peoples. Monks and lay people both depended on observing the sky, the local environment, to divide the day into parts. What did change, however, is the idea of what time itself is in the scientific tradition that informs the church's practices of timekeeping and temporal regulation. The natural rhythms observed time were flexible, elastic, environmental, multisensory. Ecclesiastical time was or aspired to be regular, fixed, abstract, and textual. Time itself was thought to arise from the act of measurement and division. Bede, uh, departing here from his source in Isidore of Seville's etymologies, he states that times, tempora, take their name from measure, temperamentum, either because every unit of time is separately measured, temperatum, or because all the courses of mortal life are temperentur, measured in moments, hours, days, months, years, ages, and epochs. For Bede, uh, as for Isidore, the very concept of an hour signifies the division of one period of time from another. Uh, Bede follows Isidore in saying that hora, or hour, comes from the Greek hora, or boundary. An hour is further divisible into smaller and smaller units, as Beertferth, uh, who never met a number he didn't like, explains. <laughs> the day has 24 hours, has 96 points. Four puncti make an hour in the sun's course. And the point is so-called because the sun advances point by point on the sundial. Now, I've wondered whether there's an old rule of thumb, I guess you would call it, that you can tell when the sun is setting by using your hand against the horizon, and four fingers makes an hour, and you would count like that. And I think it's a fairly old, I mean, I learned it from Boys Life magazine, but I think it's a fairly old system of estimating time. And I wonder if the four puncti has anything to do with that. I'm sure it's just a coincidence, but I'm putting that out there as my foray into uh, 
digital humanities. <laughs> there are 96 points in the day. Uh, these points have 240 minutes. A minute is the tenth part of the hour, and it's called a minute because it is such a little time, less than a moment is. Beardfest goes on to parse time into smaller and smaller fractions, delighting to define what he could in no way have measured. There are 960 moments in the day, each the 40th part of an hour, 1,440 ostenta, the 60th part of an hour. Each ostentum has 376 atoms. So the day has 24 hours, 96 points, 240 minutes, 360 parts, 960 moments, 2,440 ostents, and 541,440 atoms. True time exists in this measurement. And the measurement is what makes us human. As Cassiodorus says, the order of life passes in confusion. If such true discrimination is unknown, indeed it is the habit of beasts to feel the hours by their bellies hunger and to be unsure of something obviously granted for human purposes. Without that clock, we're just animals. Monks might live and pray in flexible seasonal hours, but the computus, whose real interest was in the course of the year and the calculation of Easter, insisted on these equinoctial hours and their precise divisions. The importance of equinoctial hours was kept in the monastic consciousness, among other things, by Bede's long discussions in De Temporum Ratione, which is a section taken from Pliny, of the different number of hours of sunlight in different places in the world. The differing length of day and night in summer and winter is a fundamental item of geographical information. And the first chapter of Bede's Ecclesiastical History notes that the winter nights in Britain are 18 hours long, far removed from the sunny Mediterranean or the Holy Land. A text explaining the changing proportions of day and night across the year is found in the 11th century Alfwina prayer book, uh, and the information on the relative hours of day and night in each month is attached to most surviving monastic calendars. Have another slide, and there it is at the bottom of the calendar 16 hours of night and 8 hours of day. The actual hours of day and night for the latitude of Winchester and Jarrow are not too far off from the numbers given in these calendars, though so rounding the numbers up to the nearest whole number does affect their accuracy, of course. So these are probably not based on Mediterranean originals, they may be based on the information in, in Pliny, though. The regularity of these equinoctial hours mattered to the computists, not for daily prayer, but for their larger purpose. The date of Easter depended on the date of the vernal equinox, one of only two days in the year on which the day and the night are the same length. This was something the seasonal hours did not notice, could not measure. So most people simply relied on the authority of a scholar like Bede. He insisted the church should follow the Alexandrian calculation of the equinox on March 21st, not the earlier convention of using March 25th, God forbid. He, he asserts in several places that the truth of the Alexandrian date could be demonstrated with a sundial. Not because the hours of day and night are equal on the equinox, as you might think, but because on that day the sun rises due east. In De Temporum Ratione, chapter 30, he notes that the correct date of the equinox is supported not only by the authority of the fathers, but also by the examination of a sundial. It's likely that he's thinking of something like the horologium of Willebrord, produced at Echternach in the early 8th century, and here in a Paris manuscript. Um, here's a more colorful version, a little easier to see. In the Munich Computus, 
a 9th century German manuscript based on earlier Northumbrian sources, we think. This is not used to tell the hours, but to mark the beginnings of the seasons. Colored lines in concentric circles note the position of sunrise and sunset at the solstices and equinoxes. You can't tell time with this. You can't tell what hour it is, but you can tell what season it is with this. But even if Bede had a device like this, and he could have accurately found due east on the horizon, which is no easy thing to do. The spring equinox in Bede's day was actually March 16th or 17th, not March 21st. On the, the actual equinox, not the calculated equinox. Uh, on the 21st, the sun rose about three degrees north of east. So to put it charitably, he had not claiming that he had made these observations, but saying that these observations could be made. He was not bringing the possibility of observation uh, he, was, he was bringing the possibility of observation to the support of a conclusion he had already reached to uh, support the Alexandrian date of the equinox against the erroneous practices of the Picts and the Irish. He was not proposing that observation should be used to determine the equinox. He's not a scientist. Only that observation would confirm the date that he already knew to be correct. But what I think is more striking, whether or not Bede actually did these observations, was that his claim assumes that the workings of this horologium were familiar enough to his readers that it would be a reasonable assertion to make in passing without any further evidence or explanation, or perhaps familiar enough that his readers would know that it could be done with such a device, but not so familiar that they would realize how nearly impossible it was to actually do it. So it's something that they're familiar with and maybe not over-familiar. But to be clear, the insistence on the primacy of equal hours was in spite of, not because of, any device that could precisely measure these hours. Equinoctial hours might have been observed in the transit of certain stars, which crossed the sky at a constant rate of 15 degrees an hour. I suppose you could have done that too to find the hours. Uh, but there was no easy way to transfer this measurement to the hours of daylight. Hourglasses were not in common use until the 14th century. Um, as we heard yesterday, Asser's Life of King Alfred uh, reports that the king had a candle clock, um, six candles that burned one after another through a whole day and night. This sort of device would have been ruinously expensive for anyone but a king to use on a regular basis. I think there would have been serious quality control issues with the candles as well. And the elaborate detail which Asser describes this device suggests its novelty and I assume its rarity as well. Water clocks were not uncommon in the Roman world, but they were rare before the 10th century. Uh, there's one in Fleury around the time of Abo, so Birtferth may have known of one. There's another in Ravenna, the time of Gerbert. Um, a possible Romano-British water clock has been found at Market Overton in Rutland. It consists of a bronze bowl with a tiny hole in the bottom. This is not that artifact. This is a, a, an Iranian device that's just illustrating the concept. There's a tiny hole in the bowl, and it floats on the surface of a bucket of water, and it sinks down into it. Then someone fishes it out and empties it and starts over. Um, there's no evidence, to my knowledge, for any use of these devices in Anglo-Saxon England. Um, in any case, candle clocks and water clocks do not indicate the time of day. They're timers. They're not clocks. They measure duration, not a point in time. They would have been able to measure equal hours only if some external point of reference were available against which to calculate them and calibrate them. But since most human activity was scheduled, when it was scheduled at all, by the passage of the unequal hours, what use would such a timer be outside of an astronomical context? 
In practice, the night hours were kept by watching the stars and chanting psalms. Gregory of Tours wrote a small treatise, the Cursus Stellarum, which explains how to tell the right hour for prayer based on the rising of particular stars. And there's an 11th century text from a Benedictine monastery in France, unfortunately we don't know which one, which lays out practical guidelines for telling the time for prayer by observing the passage of certain stars over different points of the buildings in the monastery at different times of the year. The most ancient and reliable way to measure the hours of the day, of course, is to consider the length of a shadow, which will be long in the early morning, gradually growing shorter till midday, gradually lengthening again until sunset. To observe this, you only need to face away from the sun so you can see your shadow, or hold a stick to cast the shadow, then measure the distance from yourself to the end of the shadow. Another way, of course, is to mark a semicircle around the stick, at which point it becomes a gnomon, Uh, and watch the shadow arc across the ground from west to east as the sun travels from east to west across the sky. In addition to providing a way uh, of indicating the time of day, the course of the shadow serves as a kind of inscription of the sun's orbit through the heavens. In both of these methods, the shadows vary according to the season, and they differ from one latitude to another, because the sun is higher or lower. Uh, Greek and Roman sundials, generally carved on Uh, concave or spherical surfaces were made to be accurate for their locations. And while many of these obviously survived the Middle Ages, the knowledge required to make them did not. When sundials were reintroduced to England with Christianity, the kind in general use uh, was a simple semicircular or circular vertical dial facing south with a right-angled gnomon sticking out of it. The dials were divided into various equal sections, which marks the seasonal hours rather than the equinoctial hours. And the lines were often carelessly spaced, making most dials inaccurate, even for the seasonal hours. Furthermore, for a sundial to work accurately and consistently throughout the year, the gnomon must be at an angle equal to the sun's latitude. Nowadays, they do that with a triangular blade, usually in the middle of the sundial. In most Anglo-Saxon sundials, the gnomon was apparently a perpendicular rod, So the shadow was not accurate in any modern sense at all. But the shadow did move across the surface of the dial, which was sufficient to indicate different times of day. In a remote location with only one sundial, there would be no way to measure the dial's accuracy, and I think no need to measure the dial's accuracy. Moreover, the shadow on the dial is an event marker, not a time marker. Mass or morning prayer would occur not at a fixed time of day, but at a fixed length of the shadow whose hour varied according to the seasons. As a device for measuring abstract time, the sundial is all but useless. As a way of synchronizing communal activity, it's perfectly adequate, at least on a sunny day. Now, it's difficult to generalize about Anglo-Saxon sundials. No doubt many have been lost. Most that survive are poorly preserved and not precisely datable. Some may be reused from earlier buildings, Some have been moved from their original locations, since they're now in places where they uh, can't track the sun's movement. They're sometimes hard to distinguish from the post-conquest scratch dials added haphazardly to south-facing surfaces of churches in the 12th century and later. But many of the surviving Anglo-Saxon dials, like this early dial at Eskom in County Durham, from around 700, we think, or the later dial from Great Edstone in New Yorkshire are divided most prominently into four sections, marking the canonical hours of 
mid-morning, mid-day, and mid-afternoon, the third, sixth, and ninth hours. Some have other sections marked as well, though not usually 12 of them. Uh, there's a line in, in many sundials between uh, dawn and terse, for example, which is the time for mass. But the canonical hours are emphasized by having crosses scratched into them. I think that's what the crossbars mean. Those are the canonical hours for, for monastic prayer or for communal prayer. Such crude sundials are only a bare improvement on the direct observation of the sun in the landscape, but an important one. It places an object between the observer and the phenomenon. Instead of looking at the sun or the shadow of a, of a building or a tree, you can consult an instrument whose markings, however rudimentary, represent an abstract numerical model of time. It is the idea of the dial, I think. that It represents a more civilized, a more correct way to talk about time and advance in discourse rather than technology. That is its greatest accomplishment. Even the roughest sundial introduces a new kind of abstraction into the experience of time. It, it would be possible now to see the shadow touching a line on the dial and say, there, it is terse. You're not guessing, you're not estimating, you're not ballparking it, you're not fudging it, you're just saying there. The shadow is there, and that's the time. And that, it tells me the time now. Uh, a number of surviving sundials are in parish churches, not monasteries, and some have inscriptions that indicate lay donation and not monastic provenance. The Edstone dial is inscribed, Lothan may rochte, Lothan made me. This unusual circular dial in uh, St. Bartholomew's in Aldborough, Yorkshire, is inscribed, Ulf ordered this church to be built for himself and for the soul of Gunwara, I think a feminine name, a female name, so maybe his wife. Uh, the famous Kirkdale dial in North Yorkshire has an elaborate inscription stating that Orm, the son of Gamel, bought the church when it was derelict and rebuilt it in the time of Edward the Confessor and Tostig the Earl, so 1055 to 1065. These inscriptions are fairly late. They suggest that some sundials may have been erected, at least in part, as lay donations, acknowledging and promoting the temporal practices of the church. However inaccurate they may be, by any modern standard, church sundials are symbols of a new sense of time and a way of disseminating a new idea about time and human activity. They indicate by their physicality and their placement in a site of authority that time is measured by an instrument and authorized by the church, not observed in the landscape. In conjunction with the ringing of church bells, they would have spread this new consciousness of time far beyond the walls of the church or monastery. Now, in the absence of a sundial, an hour could be gauged by the length of your shadow. There are early Greek tables which give the length of a shadow at different hours in different months of the year. In medieval manuscripts, this is sometimes called a horologium viatorum, or viarum, a traveler's sundial. Here's an early example from the Munich Computus, which again is based on uh, sources probably from Bede's time. Uh, the concentric rings represent the hours uh, from 1 to 6 and 7 to 12, because the shadows cast by the rising sun are symmetrical to the shadows cast by the setting sun. Um, and the pie-shaped segments represent the months of the year. It's a highly redundant chart. The shadow lengths given for the months from July to December mirror the information given for January to June, because the, the course of the sun from the winter to the summer solstice is symmetrical to the course of the sun from the summer to the winter solstice. You only need half that chart. Um, in fact, in these diagrams, that semicircular design is completely beside the point. What matters are the numbers themselves, not the shape of the diagram. 
that contains them. The shape is presumably meant to evoke a physical sundial. The uh, late 7th century dial on the Bucastle cross, if it is a cross, um, with its unusual 12 divisions of the semicircle, is a good physical analog to that horologium viatorum. Though, honestly, I think it's hard to say which is the model of which in this particular case. The information on the horologium text also lies behind the workings of the Canterbury pendant portable dial, a 10th century object found in 1938. This is not that actual thing, but a replica of it, just so you know. <laughs> it's made of silver and gold. This one is pewter, I think. About six centimeters high. It measures the third, sixth, and ninth hours. It determines the time by the altitude of the sun without reference to your direction. Let me see. What month is this? October? Over here. Can't read it. Okay, I'll just stick it in there. You can't see it anyway. Um, you point it towards the sun. Uh, you don't need to know where north is. The removable pin is inserted in the hole for the month, and the little, there are little dots on it that mark where the shadow should fall on the third and the, on the ninth hour, and then on, on the sixth hour. Now, if, if you do it vertically, the, the, holes, the order of the holes are reversed, but it works either way. If my high school geometry serves me right, um, I have used this. And I, I will attest, whether horizontally or vertically, to its incredible inaccuracy. <laughs> um, now, now, Knoxville is on the latitude of, of Malta, so it's not, it's, it's not probably a relevant uh, measurement. But I've been out on a sunny day trying to get the shadow to fall on, this, uh, on, the, on the right place. It's not, uh, it doesn't work very well. Now, Mario Arnaldi, whose 2011 article is the source of my information for this thing, uh, suggests that its users could have varied the height of the pin to somewhat improve the accuracy of the device by putting it in this way and then putting it in that way. It's an exquisite little piece of jewelry. It's another indication that having an instrument, any instrument, to tell the hours was seen as preferable, more prestigious, perhaps more precise, more civilized, to simply looking at the sky. So looking at the sky would be more accurate. Uh, 12th century version of the Horologium Viatorum in Oxford, St. John 17, more elaborate than the Munich text, even more redundant, extending the semicircle into a full circle at the bottom half of the folio, presenting a shell-shaped diagram above with the title Concordia Duodecim Mencius Minoris and the, the words Horologium Viatorum, Horologium Viatorum. Uh, it is framed by a text that gives the correspondence between uh, the months, January and December, February and November, and so on. The 12 months are written around the rim of the diagram. In each wedge of the top diagram, the text gives the correspondences between the hours, 1 and 11, 2 and 10, 3 and 9, and so on. And is identical in each section. The numbers are the same in each section. Down the sides of the page are six roundels, three on a side, which specify the length of hourly shadows for pairs of months. The larger circular diagram in the lower half of the page says habet ora et pedes, the months of the year around the rim, the hours written in a series of concentric circles, and it lays out the very same information as the roundels and the other diagram. A simpler, uh, frankly, more usable version of this information is a set of so the six roundels that give the length of a shadow at the canonical hours, three, six, and nine, is found in some 10th and 11th century manuscripts. This is from the Leofrich Missal. The information is appended to a number of calendars. The calendar I showed you before has the, this information. 
down there underneath the number of hours of night and day, as well as uh, Tiberius A3, a more elaborate version of this uh, apparently unique text there. So it's very common, it's very widespread, this thing, the Orologium Viatorum. There are interesting problems with this text. One is that the height of the object casting the shadow is never given. A standard height of six feet is assumed, but without a height specified for the shadow casting object, the chart is really hard to use. More importantly, the elevation of the sun above the horizon and thus the length of the shadow varies not only by the hour and the season, but by latitude. You can do that calculation to figure out the, the angle of the sun above the horizon, or you can type it into an internet site and they'll do the calculation for you. Um, and the tables in use in Anglo-Saxon England were not calculated for the latitudes of England. Using the values given for the sixth hour, midday, the highest point of the sun, one arrives at the following values for the elevation of the sun in degrees. Compare this to the actual solar elevation at midday on these dates in Northumbria. And the inaccuracy of the chart is clear. The links, in fact, are closer, though not much closer, uh, to the values appropriate to the latitude of Rome. So this very neat and practical-looking traveler's sundial, a very handy device, a handy text for telling the hours of prayer, no matter where you are, was essentially useless for the purpose for which it was written and copied. If these widespread, sometimes elaborately conceived texts were so inaccurate, why were they so popular? I think they are fundamentally aspirational texts, and no less theoretical than the lists of equinoctial hours throughout the year. They attest to a belief in the connection between the measurement of time and the conception of the cosmos, in which the regular rhythm of time is a reflection of the regularity of the universe, the symmetrical shadows, the moving image of the perfect harmony of the sun as it wheels around the earth. Texts like this are a way of imposing order on the passage of time, an order beyond what can be observed in the world itself. They argue that time was not to be found in an idiosyncratic hodgepodge of local signs and events, changing from valley to hillside to coast. Time was rather the smoothly moving numerical manifestation of universal celestial harmony, visible and measurable on the earth for those who know how to read it. They attest as well, I believe, to the impulse towards the textualization of time in early medieval England. Natural time, whether the months or the hours, is expressed in terms of events like cock crow or sunset or harvest uh, and determined by a variety of uh, multisensory indicators, the blooming of plants, the behavior of animals, the position of the sun in a landscape that were collated to yield a rough sense of your place in time. Modern time is determined by reference to a single authoritative standard whose relation to the lived environment is sometimes tenuous. <coughs> The history of timekeeping is a history of successive abstractions, placing a layer between the observer and reality. The sundial, the calendar, the paschal table, instruments built on astronomy designed to reduce the need for any actual observation of the heavens. The more cultural value is invested in these textual markers of time, rather than the observed time itself, the more time comes to be regarded as existing prior to and apart from 
the events that happen in time. In the same way that the more cultural value is invested in texts and documents, the more written language comes to be regarded as primary and spoken language as secondary and somehow defective. Reckoning this new sense of time required instruments, either physical or textual, that stand between the observer and the world. This mediation makes many new things possible, from synchronized prayer schedules to paschal tables that stretch to the end of time and perhaps beyond. And like most mediating technologies, timekeeping devices tend to usurp the place of direct experience in the imagination to become the real markers of time. To know what time it is, you look at the sundial, not the sun. The history of the idea of time among the Anglo-Saxons is this story of a movement from observation to representation, from experience to abstraction, from watching the sky to reading a chart. The instruments used to create this sense of time give it a feeling of objectivity because they seem to reveal time, not construct it. The historian Lewis Mumford famously argued that the clock, not the steam engine, is the key machine of the modern industrial age because by its essential nature, it dissociated time from human events and helped create the belief in an independent world of mathematically measurable sequences. I believe that Mumford's idea in its broader sense ought to include the early medieval efforts to measure and order time according to these abstract models. Before modern time was built in the 13th and 14th centuries in the great mechanical cathedral and civic clocks, it was written in works of monastic timekeeping, calendars, charts, and tables. Before it could be modeled in wood and iron, the Christian empire of time had to be captured in ink and parchment. The changing idea of the hours of the day is just one page of that story. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Conflicting Chronologies in the Pre-Modern World. Measuring time from antiquity to the Middle Ages and Renaissance.